Well, good evening, my dear brethren and sisters and young people. Brother Carl has been leading us in this series of studies on the life of Hezekiah. And this afternoon he led us to the theme, Yield Yourselves Unto Yahweh, when the call of repentance went out from Judah into Israel and some of the Israelites responded and came to Jerusalem. And I'm sure we all enjoyed the words of our brother Carl this afternoon. And tonight, brethren and sisters and young people, brother Carl is to speak to us to the theme, And Yahweh Healed the People. But we will firstly open with him in prayer. Our opening hymn is number four. Brethren and sisters and young people, brother Carl has chosen to base his remarks upon the second book of Chronicles, chapter 30, verses 13 to 27. And we'll ask Brother Gavin Keynes to read that for us. Reading with you from the second book of the Chronicles, chapter 30, commencing at verse 13 through to verse 27. And there assembled at Jerusalem much people to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month a very great congregation. And they arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem, and all the altars for incense took they away, and cast them into the brook Kidron. Then they killed the Passover on the fourteenth day of the second month, and the priests and the Levites were ashamed, and sanctified themselves, and brought in the burnt offerings into the house of Yahweh. And they stood in their place after their manner, according to the law of Moses, the man of God. The priests sprinkled the blood which they received of the hand of the Levites. For there were many in the congregation that were not sanctified. Therefore the Levites had the charge of the killing of the Passovers for every one that was not clean, to sanctify them unto Yahweh. For a multitude of the people, even many of Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves Yet did they eat the Passover otherwise than it was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, The good Yahweh pardon every one that prepareth his heart to seek Elohim, Yahweh Elohim of his fathers, though he be not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And Yahweh hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. And the children of Israel that were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised Yahweh day by day, singing with loud instruments unto Yahweh. And Hezekiah spake comfortably unto all the Levites that taught the good knowledge of Yahweh. And they did eat throughout the feast seven days, offering peace offerings and making confession to Yahweh Elohim of their fathers. And the whole assembly took counsel to keep other seven days. And they kept other seven days with gladness. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, did give to the congregation a thousand bullocks and seven thousand sheep. And the princes gave to the congregation a thousand bullocks and ten thousand sheep. And a great number of priests sanctified themselves. And all the congregation of Judah with the priests and the Levites and all the congregation that came out of Israel and the strangers that came out of the land of Israel 
and that dwelt in Judah rejoiced. So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there was not the like in Jerusalem. Then the priests, the Levites, arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place, even unto heaven. Thank you, Brother Gavin. We now invite Brother Carl to speak to us to the topic, And Yahweh Healed the People. Chairman, brethren and sisters, and particularly my dear young people. In our last study we were thrilled, weren't we, with the greatness of the man Hezekiah. He sent the messengers out north with that glorious message, if you turn to Yahweh, Yahweh shall turn to you and you shall find compassion. It was an invitation to come to Jerusalem, to where the strength was, to where the exposition of the truth was, to where salvation was. And we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 30 and verse 13, there assembled at Jerusalem much people to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month a very great congregation we can well imagine these people responding to the invitation and that wouldn't have been easy if they laughed the messengers to scorn what would they do with those who came down to keep the feast it was a very brave and courageous thing to do to leave your business and your farm and your village and to trek out of that village with all the scorn of your brethren to go down south and to keep the feast. And they streamed in from all over the place, arriving at a city and a temple that most of them had never ever seen before in their life. Arriving at a place where some of them ten years previously had helped to destroy in the wars of the north and the south. And imagine how Hezekiah felt as he saw all these kindred people coming in from so many places, so many backgrounds, so different people to respond to God's truth. Do you know how he felt? In Psalm 133 that we sang in our opening hymn, we have recorded the very thoughts of the king. For him it was a moment of great anticipation come true, for all Israel had responded. And the king wrote in verse 1 of Psalm 133, Behold, take a good studied look at all of these people converging into this place. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And as you saw all these strangers coming through, and the men of Jerusalem going out to meet these people halfway and to bring them into their homes, to show them the hospitality, which in themselves would have been a great lesson for the men of Judah to do, to reverse all of the enmity of decades of warfare and to dwell together in unity with people whom, people who came from backgrounds and idolatry and evil that would put Judah to shame. How would you respond, brothers and sisters, to bring someone like that into your home to keep the feast? 
know, the initial tension. You were enemies ten years ago. And as the feast gathered momentum, behold how good and how pleasant it is to dwell together in unity. As the truth binds people from diverse backgrounds, its power transcends all nationalities and unites people together. And Hezekiah rejoiced at that. And to him in verse 2, it was like a body. The body of the high priest that received the ointment that went down to the collar and the body and the head were united, north and south together. It was in verse 3 as though Hermon and Jerusalem were together again. For there in Zion, not in Samaria, not in Galilee, but here in Zion is life forevermore. And at last Hezekiah had got these people here. At last there was the opportunity to give them a chance of eternal life. And that was the purpose of the call as he brought these brethren together in unity. It's a glorious thought, isn't it? A wonderful thing. As we come back to 2 Chronicles 30 and there was gathered a very great congregation. The last time those words are used were used in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 verses 8 to 9 of the time when Solomon received a great congregation to dedicate the temple and here it is once more the same enthusiasm the same tribes together to keep the greatness of the feast. Now I want you to notice the way in which verse 13 describes the feast. It's the feast of unleavened bread and yet in verse 1 they were invited to keep the Passover now it's obviously the same feast but there is a deliberate insertion in verse 13 of a specific point. They came and kept the feast of unleavened bread. Now what is the significance of the feast of unleavened bread? I'd like you to come back to Exodus 13. The Passover and the feast of unleavened bread were united together. But there was a distinct emphasis that Chronicles is giving us about the attitude that these people kept the feast. Now in Exodus 13 and verse 6 we read these words. Seven days thou shalt eat unleavened bread and in the seventh day shall be a feast to Yahweh. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days and there shall no leavened bread be seen with thee neither shall there be leaven seen with thee in all thy quarters. Let's just pause there. It was a feast in which no leaven whatsoever was permissible. Now leaven is a symbol of malice and wickedness. And the record is saying that you are not allowed to have malice and wickedness seen with thee and God can see everything and it's not to be seen in your quarters in your house in your family and God's looking and thou in verse 8 shalt show thy son in that day saying this is done because of that which Yahweh did to me when I came forth out of Egypt and what the verse is saying is it's a very personal feast. 
It's what God did for me. And each generation telling their sons, it's what God's done for me. Even though personally they weren't delivered from Egypt after that first generation. But there is something very personal. Here's the symbol in verse 9. And it shall be for a sign, or the Hebrew is a symbol, unto thee upon thine hand, and for a memorial between thine eyes, that Yahweh's mouth, sorry, Yahweh's law may be in thy mouth. For with a strong hand hath Yahweh brought thee out of Egypt. Now can you see the connection the verse is making? Every time you put forth your hand to take the food, it was a sign, says verse 9, that Yahweh has delivered you with his strong hand. And every time you put food in your mouth, which wasn't leavened, it was a sign that Yahweh's law is in thy mouth. That's the symbol of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's personal. It's where leaven of wickedness and malice shall not be seen at all in your life. And every time you eat food and put it into your mouth, it's a sign that you can't save yourself and you're feeding upon the law of God. Now when we come back to 2 Chronicles 30, look at the way the record is presenting that. Because in verse 22, 2 Chronicles 30, Hezekiah spake comfortably unto all the Levites that taught the good knowledge of Yahweh, and they did eat. See the connection? The teaching of the law, the eating of the law, and the eating of the food is put together. They kept the feast of unleavened bread. And look at verse 14. And they arose, and they took away the altars that were in Jerusalem, and the censers, as the Hebrew is, for incense took they away, and cast them into the brook Kidron. There was the Feast of Unleavened Bread to remove all leaven from your quarters. And having taken of that and come there and responded, they removed the leaven because they were personally affected. And you know, young people, particularly here in Adelaide, but we have a very large group of young people together who constantly hear exposition from the word, both at youth group and at young folks, of the very highest standard. The most difficult thing for you is to be personally affected. Not the person next to you, person in the same row, for you to be affected. Because it's very easy to belong to such a large group and you feel that you're going okay because the group's going okay. And the standard of the groups are high, therefore you feel your standards are high. It's got to affect you personally. So that no leaven is seen with you or in your quarters. And the law of God is in your mouth. Got to understand that, young people. It's very easy to just drift with the crowd in such a large group here in Adelaide. You need to be personally affected by these things. Now they arose 
and they responded to that and they got rid of all the rubbish from Jerusalem and they cast it in the Kidron Brook which we saw in chapter 29 was significant because there was the very image of Molech that Hezekiah had once been dedicated to. You know, they killed the Passover in verse 15 on the 14th day of the second month. It was the spirit and the intention of the law rather than the very letter itself. And all through this chapter we are going to see the spirit and intention of that feast shine through. If ever the law is shown to be inadequate, it is shown in this chapter. Now we notice in verse 15 that they killed the Passover and the priests and the Levites were ashamed. They sanctified themselves and and brought in the burnt offerings into the house of Yahweh. They offered and killed the Passover and the Levites were ashamed. Now what is that telling us? Shame envelops us when the conscience is pricked. This feast affected the conscience. There is something greater than law here. This Passover brought a response to the heart. And what happened was, was that the priests and the Levites saw all these people flocking in a very great multitude from all over the land, from right up to Galilee, from the most degenerate parts of Israel. And they saw all these people streaming in, wanting to participate at the feast, and they themselves had neglected to clean themselves. These people wanted to partake of the feast, and the Levites were unprepared, and they felt awfully embarrassed. They sanctified themselves. We ought never to underestimate the power of personal example. These priests and Levites, young people, did not respond to Hezekiah's speech. They did not respond to the appeal of the 14 Levites. They didn't respond to the opening of the temple. They didn't respond to the rejoicing in chapter 29. They didn't respond to the very message that went out through the posts. But one thing did affect them. And when they saw genuine people streaming in, wanting to keep the law, that moved them. What is that telling us? We ought never to underestimate the power of sincerity. We can affect others by the very genuineness of our disposition. Ever thought about that? And people who have ignored appeal after appeal after appeal do respond to sincerity. And these people saw that. There's a wonderful lesson behind that. We may not be eloquent. We may fumble with our words and be unable to express our feelings. But if there's a genuineness and sincerity about that, we can zealously affect others for good. We can all do that, young people. Zealously affect others for their well-being by the very sheer desire of wanting to serve God in sincerity and in truth. And isn't that what Paul said, that we should keep the feast 
not with the leavened bread of wickedness and malice, but the unleavened bread of sincerity. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8. It's genuineness that moves people. You know that if someone comes to you and he wants to make a point to you and he's filled with an earnestness, we listen to that. And these Levites were the same. They didn't respond to anything else but the genuineness of those people who wanted to participate there's an enormous power in example and you know it works the other way. To have to stand and listen to people grumble and groan and complain works exactly the other way. It's like leaven. It starts off in a very small amount and it begins to grow and to rise in a person's life. We ought never to neglect the power, the living example of God in us. And verse 16, they stood in their place after their manner, according to the law of Moses, the man of God. Now why should the record record that? They stood in their place after their manner. Nothing was left to chance. Hezekiah had every detail under control, even the very place where people stood. But there's a deeper meaning in that. You see, the Hebrew expression, stood in their place, is translated in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 18, to set upright. It's used of Daniel who was lying in the dust of death, a symbolic death. The angel touched him and he stood upright. It's the same Hebrew expression there in verse 16. They stood in their place. And that expression, after their manner, the Hebrew word manner there is the Hebrew word mishpat, according to judgment. So they stood upright, according to justice. That's the deeper meaning. When a person is sanctified, and they are washed and they are cleansed. They are resurrected people. And the standing upright, according to the justice of God, was the way in which they ministered this feast. Now in verse 16, the priests sprinkled the blood which they had received of the hand of the Levites. And there we pause. Because that was not the way the Passover law was designed. In fact, verse 17 is in parenthesis to explain why there is an irregularity. The priests sprinkled the blood which they had received at the hand of the Levites. Now the Passover law was designed that the head of the house was the man who slew the lamb accepted the blood and took the blood directly to the priests. In verse 16, that was disregarded and the Levites took them instead. Now we're going to see why in verse 17 in a moment. But if you notice once more, brethren and sisters, the emphasis upon the sprinkling of the blood. Let's come back to 2 Chronicles 29. 
We said we come back to verse 22. We didn't have time. But I want to talk about verse 22 now in the context of the sprinkling of the blood. So they were to offer the burnt offering. And we read in verse 22 that they killed the bullocks and the priests received the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. Likewise, when they had killed the rams, they sprinkled the blood upon the altar. They killed also the lambs and they sprinkled the blood upon the altar. And there is an obvious, an obvious emphasis that in all of those sacrifices, the sprinkling of the blood was an ingredient that was essential to the ceremony of that occasion, as it was upon the Passover feast. Now, the interesting thing is, is that when you go back to the law and you look at the, the rules concerning the burnt offering, the disposal of the blood was the least significant part of the offering. As it was in the Passover, those sacrifices concentrated upon the cleansing of the inwards, the whole dedication of the animal, the whole burnt offering, the whole consummation of that sacrifice as a symbol of one giving their whole life to God. And it was the disposal of the blood that was least significant. And yet three times it's emphasized in verse 22 and it's emphasized in chapter 30 and verse 16. What is the lesson being told us? When we come to rededicate ourselves to God. Do you know what frequently happens? We sometimes go through a slide, don't we? A decline. We go through cycles. We have our ups and our downs. And when we are down, and we feel ourselves sliding into a decline, and we suddenly realise, well, we must rededicate ourselves to God, and we do, as it were, offer God the wholeness of our life once more. Do you know what generally happens? we conveniently ignore that state of decline. And in our zeal to rededicate and to rekindle that zeal, we conveniently forget about the slide of the past few weeks or months or whatever that may be. It is so easy on Sunday morning when we rededicate ourselves to God is to promise that commitment without remembering the past week. When verse 22 said three times for all of those offerings that they sprinkled the blood upon the altar, there must be a recognition of transgression and sin. There has got to be the principle of the shedding of the blood that God alone is righteous, that we ourselves are worthy of death, that he alone can save us and his righteousness is supreme. We are rightly related to death. And Hezekiah knew that. For years, the temple had been in decline. It was now time to rededicate themselves, to look to the future, but they had to look to the past as well. And when we come back to chapter 30 and we learn again that the priests sprinkled the blood, there's the same lesson again that those coming from the north, even though they responded to the word of God, must recognise they are in need of salvation from their transgressions. We can see, can't we, all of the offerings being offered and the blood being passed to the priests by the hands of the Levites. Now, why is there any regularity? 
Verse 17 tells us what was happening. Let's read it. For there were many in the congregation that were not sanctified. Therefore the Levites had the charge of the killing of the Passovers for everyone that was not clean to sanctify them unto Yahweh. Now according to the Passover law, it was the responsibility of the father of the house to slay the lamb. He was the priest on the occasion. He was the one that took the blood. He was the one that distributed the meal to all the family members. By the time the New Testament times came, that had gone. There were ritual sacrifices in the temple. And Judaism had destroyed the very personalization of the feast. But you see, in Hezekiah's day, that could not occur. There were people coming from all over the place and many of them were unclean. Now here is a problem. The law clearly said that if a man is not circumcised and he is unclean, he is not allowed to partake of the Passover. Now, how do you resolve that problem? The law is explicit. We've got all these people coming in to keep this feast and the majority of them are unable to participate. How do you solve that problem? Well, do you know what happened? In ancient times, the Passover feast was a very family-centered feast. Exodus 12 says quite clearly that if you had a very small number of people and you had a lamb which was too much for the household and there would be some left over, it was your responsibility to invite other families into your home until at last there was sufficient number to participate with the feast. That's a very interesting feast. If you had a very small family in Israel and you felt yourself isolated in the truth, you were commanded by the law to join with other families of similar size to participate in the feast. As it's written in Psalm 68, that God setteth the solitary in families. What a glorious feast that is. A widow there, a single person over there, people with no family. And they come together in small family groups to participate in that feast. What a glorious feast it was. And here they were, small family units. And they were unclean and unable to participate of a sacrifice that spoke of salvation. What do you do? Well, in verse 17, out of their own spontaneous understanding of the truth, without any commandment from the king, on the basis of the kinship that they felt with their brethren, the Levites had the charge of the killing of the Passover for everyone that was unclean. In other words, brothers and sisters, there were Levites there who saw the need and they moved into those family groups and they became the head of the family by de facto arrangement. What an attitude. Seeing all these families struggling, unable to keep the feast, and they moved in as the head of that house and took control and offered the sacrifice and bound those families together. That's a glorious attitude. And that's why in verse 22, when Hezekiah learnt of that, he spake, see the margin, to the heart of all the Levites that taught the good knowledge of Yahweh. 
where are the people who are prepared to step into the families of others who need help and give direction and leadership? Where are the people who look beyond their own family environments to share the concerns of others and to bring them into the fellowship of the Lamb? Those are the kind of people the Levites were. They were incredible men, spontaneously stepping into the breach and leading the people in worship and explaining to these families the significance of the feast and the meaning and to participate and to take the blood and to offer it to the priests which was against the letter of the law. But it was in exact accordance with the spirit of that family sacrifice. Tremendous disposition. Spontaneous thing that went against the letter of the law but had the very intention right. Because they wanted to sanctify those who were unclean. They had caught the spirit of Hezekiah. And that's why Hezekiah could speak to their heart. Together they were bonded to the same disposition to cleanse that which is unclean. For a multitude in verse 18 of the people, even many of Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebedan had not cleansed themselves, yet they did eat the Passover otherwise than it was written. A multitude of them. It would have exhausted the limits of the capacity of the Levites, but they still went out and drew those families together. A very busy time, but they stood in the bridge. We learn in verse 18 that Issachar is now there. They weren't mentioned before in verse 11. It was a last-minute response. Issachar. Do you know where Issachar is? Sometime you should look at the map at the back of your Bible and check where Issachar is. It is right in the middle of the Jezreel Valley. You come with me to Hosea chapter 1. And we have seen the significance of Hosea in our study this afternoon. The way in which that king caught the spirit of that prophet and it was Issachar that responded, the very valley of Jezreel. And look at this verse in Hosea chapter, chapter 1. In a place where they were not called God's people. Verse 10, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered, and it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people. There it shall be said unto them, you are the sons of the living God. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And there Jezreel stood for a symbol of God's sowing among the nation, and Judah and Israel together under one head had now become the sons of the living God and from the very region of Jezreel the people of Issachar came the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah together and there they became the sons of the living God and Hosea chapter 1 although it's future 
had a very small fulfilment in the days of Hezekiah. They ate the Passover. There would have been opposition. There would have been people who would have stood up and said it's illegal, it's not according to the law. Hezekiah had said to them, if you turn to God, he will turn to you. Now, that statement is now to be tested. The king had promised that. The people in the north have believed those words. If you turn to God, God will turn to you. If you turn to him, he will have compassion on you. Now, those words are now to be tested. Here they all are, assembled in Jerusalem. They're unclean, they're unable to keep the feast until the Levites stepped in and still they bear that uncleanness. But we read in verse 18, but Hezekiah prayed for them saying, the good Yahweh pardon everyone that prepareth his heart to seek God. Yahweh Elohim of his fathers though he be not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. How do you respond to problems like that? When people are unclean and they need to be cleansed. He prayed for them. That phrase tells us a great deal about this king. Have you noticed so far in the record that there is no mention whatsoever of a high priest. Have you noticed that? In fact, when we come back to chapter 29, look at the emphasis through the record. In verse 21, halfway through, he commanded the priests to offer. Now that was the job of the high priest, but he did that. In verse 24, halfway through, the king commanded that the burnt offerings be made for all Israel. That was the work of the high priest, but Hezekiah did it. In verse 25, Hezekiah set the Levites in the house of Yahweh. In verse 27, Hezekiah commanded to offer upon the altar. In verse 30, moreover, Hezekiah the king and the princes commanded the Levites to sing. Verse 31, Hezekiah invited them to come near. And every single time it's Hezekiah in control of all of the priestly functions. What is the record telling us? This king was the high priest. Not literally. In the words of Isaiah 53, he made intercession for the transgressors. He stood there as a high priest commanding the whole of those ceremonies and offered praise and petition to God. He is being presented as a man who is the high priest, a king priest upon his throne. But it's prayer that's the hallmark of his life. I'd like to come to James chapter 5. Here's an interesting allusion. James chapter 5. Hezekiah prayed that Yahweh would pardon the people. 
And God did heal them, as we'll see in a moment. Now look what James says. James chapter 5, verse 15. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now there could be many individuals who would fit the context of those verses. But here in the context of saving the sick, not so much those who are physically sick, although James does have that in mind as an initial consideration, but it is the forgiveness of sins. It is a serious health problem, sin. And in the context of a man praying that they may be healed, we have the man Hezekiah. Now there are a few indications that tell us that James has Hezekiah in mind. See, in verse 17 and verse 18, Hezekiah moves to the northern tribes. And he brings in the example of Elijah. And it was Elijah's job to bring back the restored of Israel. And his fervent prayers, praying to God to curse and bless the people, was part of that ministration. And then abruptly in verse 19, James says, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, and the Greek word convert means to turn back. That's the key word from Second Chronicles 30 we saw this afternoon. Let him know that he which turns back the sinner from the error of his ways shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Now why should James suddenly conclude his epistle with those words? It seems abrupt, it seems out of context. Well, I believe he has Hezekiah in mind. That his mind has gone to the north, the northern tribes. His mind has gone to Elijah who prayed fervently for Israel. And his mind is still in that region when he speaks about another turning someone from the error of their ways and saving people from death. And that's Hezekiah. Do you know what the lesson of that is, young people? It's the principle in Scripture of mediation. A few years ago, I struggled with the idea of a mediator. You have the example of Moses, where God said to Moses, I will kill this people. And Moses turns to God, he prays for their deliverance, and God says, I will save them. And it always puzzled me why there should be this seeming change of God's mind based upon the mediation of a righteous man. And I came to this conclusion, that mediation works like this. That God is saying that if I can see the effectual, fervent prayer of righteous brethren and sisters pleading 
earnestly for the salvation of others, I am prepared to listen. Now that is a powerful concept. If Moses hadn't have prayed, there would have been no salvation. If Hezekiah hadn't have prayed, there would have been no healing. And the record is telling us, brethren, as James is saying, that the effectual fervent prayer of righteous people in saving others is effectual. Do you believe that? That your prayers have the power to turn God's attention to other brethren and sisters and to heal them. That is powerful indeed. And if there is no prayer from righteous people and there is no mediation and there is no genuine concern for the welfare of others, then God does not heal those people. When we think about those kind of principles, we begin to understand the greatness of that prayer. We read it in two seconds flat that Hezekiah prayed for the people, the good Yahweh pardon everyone that prepareth his heart to seek God. But the prayer was of enormous significance. Let him know that he which turns again the sinner from the error of his way shall save a life from death. We have that power in our voices. That is enormous power, brethren and sisters to go on bended knee and to seek and to plead for the eternity of others is enormous power indeed. James finishes with the expression and shall hide or cover a multitude of sins. Come back to Second Chronicles 30. It just so happens that the Hebrew word that Hezekiah used when he said in verse 18 the good Yahweh pardon word kafar to cover or to hide you know sometimes when we are presented with the faults of others. We're not prepared to hide a multitude of sins. We go about and tell everyone else of the multitude of their sins. That's not the spirit of Hezekiah. And when we can develop, young people, a disposition that prays earnestly for others, we have the spirit of Hezekiah and of our Lord. It's an altogether different spirit, isn't it? Than whispering and backbiting and criticism and destroying. An altogether different way of life because it seeks to amend and to strengthen and to heal others. But the prayer in verse 19 was for those who had prepared their heart to seek God. The Hebrew word prepare there really means to set in order. It's used of aiming a weapon. And what Hezekiah is saying is this, if there is anyone whose heart, the emotions and affections must be touched, along with the intellect, 
If the heart has been aimed to seek God. You know, there's a determination and discipline about that word, isn't there? It's no good waiting for some nice feeling of religion and righteousness to come upon us. There has to be the discipline to seek God. The mind has to be ordered and arranged, aimed upon the word, given direction. That was whom the prayer was directed to. And they came from Israel with a heart like that. A heart. That's what Hezekiah was interested in. A heart that seeks. And the Hebrew word seek there means to trample with the feet. To frequent. It's used of a person going up and down a path, frequenting a way. In chapter 31 and verse 21, it was a quality of Hezekiah himself. In every work that Hezekiah began, verse 21, in the service of the house of God and in the law and in the commandments to seek his God, same Hebrew word, he did it with all his heart and prospered. Those are the kind of people that God requires. If you seek me with all your heart, ye shall surely find me, said Jeremiah 29 verse 13. Ye shall surely find me. person who frequents away seeking God, if they do so with all their heart, they will surely find him. Now in Isaiah 55, which I'd like you to turn to, we have all those thoughts expressed. And we've come to Isaiah 55 on several occasions. But if, look at the context against the events of chapter 30. Isaiah 55 verse 1 is an invitation. Ho! Everyone that thirst, come to the waters. And he that hath no money... Come ye, buy and eat, yea, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. And if ever that was an appeal to people like those in the northern tribes, here it was. People whose economy had been smashed by Assyria, who were destitute of natural things, who had no money. And they came to buy something far more precious. In verse 2, why do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labour for that which satisfies not? Hearken diligently to me, and eat ye that which is good. And they came to eat of the Passover feast. In verse 5, Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not. That was the northern tribes. And nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee, because of Yahweh thy God, and for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. Here is the response of nations who don't know God. And here they come pouring into the land. And verse 6. Here's the exhortation of Hezekiah's prayer. Seek ye Yahweh while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thought. Let him return. There's that word again. Unto Yahweh and he will have Mercy upon us. Those are almost the words of Hezekiah to the northern tribes. And to our God, for he will abundantly 
pardon the good Yahweh, pardon everyone. And God did forgive them. Man doesn't forgive easily. God does forgive. And in verse 12, ye shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. And it's recorded in 2 Chronicles 30 that they rejoiced before God. And it's highly likely that Isaiah 55 has its basis on those events as these people from nowhere came streaming in to eat the good things of God. When we come back to Chronicles, we can see the king with this fervent desire for everyone that prepares their heart to seek God. And we read in verse 20, and Yahweh hearkened to Hezekiah, to Hezekiah, and healed the people. And of all the words that could have been used, the record inserts the word heal. It's the theme of Hosea. It's the theme of the Lord in Matthew 9. It's found in Isaiah chapter 57. Peace, peace unto him that is afar off and to him that is near, saith Yahweh, and I will heal him. The Hebrew word means to sew back together. What a glorious word. A cut in the human body. The head had been separated from the body and Yahweh had sewn them back together and he had healed them. It's the same word used in Leviticus 14 of the healing of leprosy. And they were unclean. And God healed them because one man made intercession for the transgressors. That's the disposition we need. To seek to heal others. In Isaiah chapter 6, which I'd like you to turn to, Isaiah commenced his prophecy with these very chilling words in Isaiah chapter 6. When he saw the glory of Yahweh, and he was called to the prophetic office. In verse 9, God said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. See ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat. Make their ears heavy. Shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert. And the Hebrew word is turn again and be healed. Isaiah started the ministration by closing people's eyes because of the very difficulty of the message he was giving. Because the people didn't want to understand, they wouldn't understand. Because they didn't want a heart to be affected, their heart would never be affected. And they would never be healed because they wouldn't turn to God. And as years rolled by, a people from the north turned and were healed because their eyes were opened and their heart was affected. Tremendous thought, isn't it? That we, through our response, determine 
God's disposition to us. If we want to understand, we will understand. Young people, if you want to get virile in the ways of God, you will do so if there is a desire for the heart to want to understand. You'll be wise if you want to seek wisdom, and you do seek it. But you see, if there is no desire, and you're not really interested, and you've come to the studies, I guess, just to meet other young people solely, you'll never understand. Never understand. Because Isaiah 6, verse 9 and 10 is telling us that you can sit here and you can listen to talks and you can see things and if you're not really disposed to those things, you'll never understand. And that's the way God works. But as soon as there is a people who want to understand, look at the response of God. And Yahweh hearkened and he healed them. They're great lessons to learn, young people. When we come back to chapter 30 of 2 Chronicles, with all that in mind, they kept the feast with great gladness. Great joy. It's a theme of Hezekiah's life. In chapter 29 and verse 30, halfway through the verse, it says that they sang with gladness. In verse 36, Hezekiah rejoiced and all the people with him. In chapter 30, verse 21, we've seen it. They kept the feast with great gladness. In verse 23, the end of the verse, they kept another seven days with gladness. In verse 25, all the congregation and the priests at the end of the verse rejoiced. Verse 26, so there was great joy in Jerusalem. I guess when we go to the meetings, brethren, citizens, and young people, and we sort of shuffle through the door, and we take a seat, and we sort of gaze around in the most disinterested manner, and it's almost a chore to be there, we really haven't caught, have we, the gladness that service and worship ought to bring. Joy in service is a response of the heart that really enjoys the exposition of the truth and really enjoys the fellowship around the word and enjoys pouring out their heart and singing and praising. Is that the way we go to classes, memorial meetings and lectures? Is this why we come here this evening? Because we really want to enjoy the exposition of the word. We need to examine ourselves very closely on that. In Joel chapter 1, you needn't turn to it, God said that because joy is withered from the sons of men, I'm going to root you out of the land. Now we look at that verse and we think that seems severe. Because joy is withered from the sons of men, God will root them out of the land. But you see, joy in worship is a condition of the heart. It's a heart that's free and willing to respond. It wants to worship God because it loves God. It seeks to express itself in joy because it appreciates God. 
And when these people, for seven days, with great gladness, thrilled to that word, that was the spirit of the feast. And they were so moved that they voted for another seven days. And some of us perhaps sit through a study and we can't wait for the study to finish so we can go off and do our own thing. And the exhortation is ten minutes over time. These people voted for another seven days. Because they enjoyed listening to the word. And the privilege of serving God in sincerity and in truth. We need those lessons, don't we? With great gladness. They didn't worry about their businesses or their farms. They didn't worry about the devastation of the country. They wanted another seven days, just like they had before, because here was salvation. Here was the forgiveness of sins. They could get it at no other place in the world. And they wanted that. Tremendous response to the message that went out. In verse 22, Hezekiah, in deep appreciation of the spontaneity of the Levites, spake to their heart. Because they taught the good knowledge of Yahweh. And there was a very, very sincere, intense discussion with these men. As king and priest are united together in teaching and thrilling and moving people by the good knowledge of Yahweh. Can you see them? Huddled in a corner on the temple courts. King and priest together, inspiring each other because they can see the word has affected people. And God listened and he did forgive. And all the law, the requirements in the letter were overridden because God... God healed the people. It was a wondrous response. And the king took advantage of that. And he told the Levites that he appreciated their work. Ever you want to encourage somebody in the truth, you tell them that you really appreciate what they're doing. Because we like to feel appreciated. All of us do. Someone's noticed. Someone has taken interest. They've come up to us and they said, we really appreciate what you're doing. Keep it up. You try that sometime, young people. To show that you are behind a work of God. And you will build and you'll encourage by those simple words as Hezekiah spoke to their heart. In verse 25, all the congregation of Judah, the priests and the Levites, and all the congregation that came out of Israel, and the strangers that came out of the land of Israel and that dwelt in Judah rejoiced. Now I want you to turn to Isaiah 49. I'm going to show you a very interesting prophecy. Hezekiah has not only got Judah there, he's got 
Israel there. And beside that, he has got Gentiles. Not only Gentiles from Judah, but Gentiles from Israel. You think of those people. People who had been moved there by the Assyrians as they depopulated whole areas elsewhere and migrated Gentiles into that region. And the truth appealed to those people. Now look at Isaiah 49. Here's a servant prophecy. We've seen that these servant prophecies, although they refer to Christ, have a basis in Hezekiah. Now look at these words in verse 6. It is a light thing, says God, that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that my salvation shall be unto the ends of the earth and a very small way with the tribes of Judah and the tribes of Israel and the Gentiles responding, there was an incipient fulfillment in the work of Hezekiah. In Isaiah 56, what about those Gentiles that came in? Those people who'd never had any contact with the truth before ever. And they came into a situation where there was a temple and there was worship and there were people being forgiven. In Isaiah 56 and verse 6. Also the sons of the stranger. That Levi or join themselves to Yahweh to serve him, to love the name of Yahweh, to be his servants. Everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful. House of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Think of Isaiah speaking those words. As the stranger walked in bewildered, the truth was preached to him, he responded, and Isaiah says... You take hold of my covenant and keep my laws, I will accept your sacrifices. Tremendous encouragement. And then in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, at the end of those 14 days, time of great rejoicing since the days of Solomon, in verse 27 we read, Then the priests, the Levites, arose and blessed the people. And their voice was heard. And their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place, even unto heaven. At the end of 14 days, spontaneously, without the commandment of the king, the priests and the Levites, those who had responded to these people pouring in from all over the place, stood up at the end of the whole of the service and they sang the words of Numbers chapter 6. Yahweh bless thee and keep thee. Yahweh make his face shine upon thee and give thee peace. And we know how moving those words are when we receive someone in on Sunday morning. And you think how moving those words were when they were sung with the instruments of God.
at the end of 14 days of absolute ecstatic and glorious worship. Yahweh bless thee and keep thee. Make his face to shine upon thee. If you turn to him, he will turn to you. And Yahweh did bless them because their voice was heard in the highest heaven, his holy dwelling place. As Isaiah 57 said, Thus saith the high and the lofty one, He that inhabiteth eternity, I will dwell with him of a contrite heart and those who tremble at my word. And God listens to that. And he is prepared to listen today to that. Of weak, mortal, sickly men and women as we are, who've been brought into the embrace of salvation through the work of the Son of God, can lift their voices and be heard in the highest heaven. Who else in the world has those privileges except brethren and sisters of Christ? Who else has those privileges? And their voice was heard. And that is the inestimable privilege of being in fellowship with God. And we ought never, ever, ever to underestimate that closeness that we have with God. Now our last verse is the first verse of the next chapter. Because they didn't leave it there. Now when all this was finished, all Israel that were present went out to the cities of Judah, break the images in pieces, cut down the groves, threw down the high places and the olders out of all Judah and Benjamin in Ephraim, also and Manasseh. Right up in the north, when they went back home, they smashed the village idols until they had utterly destroyed them all. Then all the children of Israel returned every man to his possession into their own cities. Hezekiah could have easily given a decree, remove all the idols before the feast. But what he did, young people, was he moved people to see the need to get rid of them themselves. And that's why the Reformation was far superior than Josiah's. Because when you can touch people's hearts and their conscience is touched by the sincerity of your persuasion based upon the word of God and that moves people to remove idols from their life that the idols generally stay removed. And that's the disposition and the motivation that God requires. It's no good, brethren, sisters and young people. All of the laws and the rules and regulations that we live by, and I'm not saying they're not right, but if we are obeying them from a sense of duty and having to do it and grumbling and groaning, that's not the disposition God requires. It is the zeal of the words affecting us. And the heart is touched and we go forth and remove the idols. That's the disposition God requires. And it's far more effective. But verse 1 finished with all Israel 
back to their own cities. And that's where the work really begins. It's good to be enthused by the studies. But come Monday morning, we go back into the real world. And the real world is evil, subtle, and incredibly persuasive. And that's where the real work begins, young people. We can be motivated by the truth. We can be enthused by the high things of God. But the test is Monday morning when we walk through the doors at work or at school or wherever we're going. That's the crucial test. And the enthusiasm of 14 days, which is burned in their minds, and the appreciation of those 14 days is now put to the test in their own cities. The exhortation we leave with you this evening, young people, is to remember that the work has only just begun. Principles of Hezekiah's life have been good to thrill at and to understand. But come Monday morning, they've got to be put into operation. We go to our own homes, our own environments, near and far. And the principles of Hezekiah must go with us. Otherwise, the Reformation is lost. The zeal has expired. And faith has once more settled back to its loveless inactivity. What are we going to do when we get back? Is there the determination to press on? We only, we only, young people, can affect our disposition to want to change. If there is no willingness produced by this word over these course of studies, you'll never ever want to do anything until the willingness comes to mind. They destroyed all the evil in their lives. And they worshipped God with joy and great gladness. And then they went home to face an incorrigible and evil society. The lesson there is clearly for us. Let's take the joy of service. Let's continue it through our lives. That we may seek God with all our heart and truly find him.